Curve listeners, welcome back. Another week here with Karen Gerard. I guess I'm speaking in the first person today. It is summer vacation week here at the Learning Curve, at least for me. I know Gerard is preparing for his. I am I am coming to you from the beautiful shores of Grand Traverse Bay, Michigan. So if anybody out there in Michigan is listening today, I say yes, Michigan. It's awesome. Gerard, I'm I'm Almost relaxed, certainly not tan because that just doesn't happen to me. But I'm I'm enjoying my time up here, and I want to know, Gerard, what's like what's your favorite thing about? What's the one thing you always have to do on your vacation? Are you like a beach guy? Are you an active vacationer? Is it just like time away to read a book, a good book? What are you looking forward to? I'm looking forward to reading books that I want to read. I enjoy the books I read for work, but I enjoy the books that are given to me to read and comment on. But just good books. I've got a couple of history books. I'm mostly a nonfiction history uh, buff. Nonfiction? Come on, Gerard. I'm like over here rereading Bridget Jones's diary and stuff. (laughs) Come on, man. I saw the movie, so that's the closest I get to. <laughs> yeah, I'm not really rereading Bridget Jones' diary. I'm just, that's, pre- that's about my speed when I'm on vacation. I want cake. I want absolute cake about people doing bad things and getting married. I don't know. Or not even married, just doing stuff that I don't get to do anymore. So. <laughs> <laughs> and what about, where are you heading? Is there something, is this a family vacay you've got coming up? We both, listeners, we had to carefully curate our vacation time so as not to miss a week you know it's important to us so we're going to head to hershey pennsylvania for a couple of days that's the family trip and then for my own trip i'm doing my first vacation, where it's just uh, me myself and i and i'm gonna head to a spa in an undisclosed location yeah, undisclosed. and yeah. eat a vegan food for a week stretch think meditate all the good things I love it. I'm with you. I, I am not a vegan, but I am here with my family in Michigan and they really enjoy barbecue. And I'm not, I don't eat a whole lot of meat, but every once in a while I will. And after this week, I, I'm thinking <laughs> veganism is <laughs> okay. And I'm too, I've been saving a spa vacation. So maybe I'll get to talk to you about that in the fall. I don't know. So Gerard, wow, we've got a guest coming up today and lots in the news. And I think that our guest is going to um, have a lot to say about one of our, our stories of the week. I've been looking at this week, an Ed Week story by reported by Sarah Schwartz. And she's talking about what some of us, I bet you've been watching this, the new NAPE reading that framework has been adopted. And this was a contentious one, as you know. The listeners, for those of you who don't follow these issues, NAEP is, of course, one we call it the nation's report card. It's it's a test that is given to a sample, a random sampling of the nation's school children in, in reading and math. And it has for, wow, Gerard, I think it was approved in 1969 and launched in the 70s. And for all this time, it's been acting as a barometer for, you know, what kids really do sort of know in terms of basic skills in this country. And and for, for too long, the results haven't been good for, well, almost anyone. But with regard to the reading framework, what's been so contentious, as I don't have to tell you, Gerard, is there's this discussion, which, you know, has been coming for a long time in the world of standardized testing, around how much of reading is really sociocultural in nature and how much how much we can really assess about what students know if reading is sociocultural in nature. And then on the other end, we've got, as I think that our, our guest is going to talk a little bit about today, we've got the idea that you can't just assume that everything is sociocultural and that might undercut the ability of some kids if we think about it that way or make things too easy and that we need to provide everybody with the right shared background knowledge and then understand if they have that and they have the skills to succeed. And so what was really at stake here in NAEP where there were those who argued that because reading comprehension, in fact, is socioculturally rooted, they wanted to see, quite frankly, lots of help for kids. So lots of pop-up boxes, giving information about words and putting things in context for kids. And some thought this is going to make it too easy. So how are we really going to know if you're just handing kids the tools to get to the answer? We don't know if they have the ability to get to the answer themselves. And then on the other end, there was concern that really revamping the test too much in this way to give kids who needed it or, and quite frankly, kids from certain backgrounds was what they were talking about too much of this leg up, so to speak, was going to disturb the very precious, 
if you're a psychometrician, NAEP trend line, meaning could we really have the ability to say from one year to the next that, you know, students had moved the needle at all or had remained stagnant or had lost learning. And that trend line feels very precious as a tool for helping us understand where we're headed nationally and what we need to do. So where they've landed, Gerard, which I think is probably the right place, was in the middle. Students are going to get a little bit more support, but we're adding some things to the NAEP. We're going to be able to maintain the trend line, but also adding a few things to the NAEP in addition to beefing up that those sociocultural supports so that students can really engage in what the NAEP is calling. And now I guess I think is going to have something to say about this reading comprehension questions, which hadn't really previously been there before. So this is the idea that students should be able to read something and then, then understand it and apply it, write about it. I try and get my own kids to do that. Sometimes they don't, so I don't know. I'm not a reading specialist, so I can only opine so much on this, but I will say, having worked in the testing industry for a long time, I certainly get the trend line issue. And I'm glad to see that this was resolved, Gerard. You know, in what has been just a contentious 2020, NAEP, NAEP in fact, for, for those of us ed policy geeks out there, was no exception. And I'm glad to see that they came to what feels like a, a balanced and reasonable conclusion. What, what do you think, Gerard? Testing, as you know, and as we've discussed a number of times, is really political. It addresses the issue of race and gender, zip codes, poverty, disparity, everything else. I've have I've shared my own ideas about NAEP. I'm glad we have it, a national report card. As it relates to this, I'm gonna just wait and see how it plays itself out. There are a lot of reasons you have a prompt, but I also see what other people are saying about leading students to the answer. So this is one where I will um, just sit on the sideline and watch because at the end of the day, I've got three really good questions. Can students read a passage or a number of passages and comprehend it with some level of curiosity? Can they do it and do it in a way where they actually know how to apply it across different genre? And third, when they read it, do they enjoy being a reader? Someone who had challenges reading all through school, including high school. I know how important it is to read and having worked with people who have challenges even as adults. You know, 33, 30, what? I think 7 million people who are adults have challenges reading above grade level 8. I can see why we want to make these things work at the lower level. So, you know, said more than I probably need to, but it keeps me interested in what we think about reading. So. Thanks so much for sharing the story. And learn for those of us Ed Wonks and aspiring Ed Wonks is that, you know, the Gerard Robinson sit back, watch, see what happens, patience lesson is probably better than making a lot of assumptions. So I like it. I think you're right on this one. I'm, I'm, I'll wait and see with you. We shall wait and see. Here's another wait and see. And my article has uh, a lot to do with virtual education. And mm. this is from Newsweek, uh, Maggie, uh, Maggie Guile. And the title is 38 States Setting Up Permanent Virtual Schools After Pandemic Sparked Interest. So there are at least 38 states that have approved policies to have permanent virtual learning in schools based upon what we saw with COVID-19. And this comes from an Associated Press report. So AP obtained the data from a poll that was conducted by State Departments of Ed, and it's unsure how many agencies overall completed it, but we know at least 38 have. And while they did not name all the states, they identified a few states that are important to us because either we live here or we have friends who are doing some important work. But before I go there, the executive director of the American Association of School Administrators, Dan Dominich, who I uh, met in a previous life, he's got a really interesting quote I want to share with you. And here it is. It is the future virtual education. Some of these states might be denied it now, but soon they will have to get in line because they will see other states doing it and they will see the advantages of it. And so one of the states they mentioned is your very own Massachusetts, although I know you have many states, whether it's Illinois or Michigan, but your state. So what are you guys doing? According to the report, Massachusetts will require detailed proposals from districts that must address equitable access, curriculum and documented demand to show that there's actually need for it. Mm-hmm. I support that, but I'm going to come back because I think there's something else behind that. Go further south and we get to my state of Virginia. Before the pandemic, most of the locally operated virtual programs in the Commonwealth offered individual courses, but only the students in grades 6 to 12. And a few, if any, offered full-time instruction. 
in the new coming year, of the 132 school divisions we have in the Commonwealth, 110 say they will use uh, Virtual Virginia, which is our state-operated K-12 program, to provide some or all of their full-time uh, instruction online. And the reason this is important to note is that during the 2019-20 school year, just take a guess at how many students in Virginia used the online learning portal. Oh, if they had, I don't know how much, how many of them had immediate access to it, if it was an access issue, but I would imagine it was a very high percentage, like over 50% if they had access. Yep. Give me a number, just a gut number. Come on. I don't even know how many students there are in Virginia. 100,000. 413. According to the Department of Ed here in Virginia, but the spokesperson said so far, 7,636 students have enrolled full-time for the fall that's this coming fall so not only is that a large increase but it goes to show that there is a growing interest but i would have assumed even though i'm here the number would have been higher than 413 but those are two states that we live in what about other states let's talk about a mom in new jersey she's got a son fully vaccinated he's going to return to school but she has a son who's much younger no vaccine for him she wants him to stay home although he's of school age, and she wants him to go to school online. And so New Jersey is one of the states that's working to make this happen. Now, why I think this is important is because, A, the fact that you have Doug uh, and others who are commenting on this is important. It's 38 states. At some point, it should be 50. And I also wonder how they count virtual education, because I'm sure some of the states that are not a part of the 38 in fact, have a non-in-public school learning option, even before COVID. May have been called something else, but that's you know more you know policy weed work. But what I will say is that when I look at the Virginia number, I go back to what April of 2010. At the time, I was Secretary of Education, working under Governor Bob McDonald, where he signed legislation to, in fact, create a full-time virtual learning program for students in Virginia. And when I had to testify before committees as to why the legislation made sense, I said back then what many people knew then and probably understand more now is that one model or one size does not fit all. And even though we had virtual Virginia, which is older than the pandemic and educators have used it for years, there's some families who simply said because of my work schedule or because I'm in the military and Virginia has a lot of military families, there are a number of families who say we just need virtual options. And the arguments used against it in 2010 were the, some of the same ones used today. Good questions. How do we address equity? How do we address access? But some of the people, frankly, who were raising the questions just didn't like virtual education exactly. because it wasn't a part of the public controlled approach to teaching and delivery. And I'm not saying that Massachusetts is doing that alone, but in the absence of COVID-19 issues about equity and the curriculum were pretty existent in the traditional public schools. So I'm glad the 38 states are doing it. Glad my state is moving forward and want to hear your thoughts. I think two things, right? I think that virtual schools, the skepticism of virtual schools, I think you're right. We should, of course, ask questions. But I think the what about the how access and equity and all of that stuff is usually really not. They don't care about the how a lot of times. And I think this has been happening in Massachusetts. What they're really saying is like, oh, there's no way for equity. And to your point, our traditional public schools, our district schools are incredibly inequitable. I mean, Massachusetts, one thing, you know, we hear all the time is like number one for some you, and, and that's exactly uh, and I think the other thing here is that virtual schools have for a very long time been associated with charter schools. So if you're not, Good I mean, point. we are in a, in a state with incredible charter schools and quite frankly, you know, a lot of hostility toward them sometimes coming from, sorry, guys, the authorizer itself, the state. And so I think that's in, in a place like Massachusetts, I think that's the hesitancy. There's probably a lot more that goes into it. But I feel like we should have been on this thing. We couldn't see the pandemic coming. Maybe Bill Gates did, you know, whatever. But we should have been on this thing for any number of reasons. I mean, if you think yep. if you look at a place like the Florida Virtual School, where yep. they were using it, leveraging it when kids had to be out of school because there was yet another hurricane, right? Yep. This stuff isn't stopping, whether it's climate change, whether it's pandemic, whether it's simply some kids. Now, we know that there was a lot of learning loss due to remote learning, which is different than virtual learning. Some yes. 
lost a lot of learning. Some kids flourished in online education. So let's make it high quality for them. And the other thing that I think here, Gerard, is that people into those who are scared of virtual education and they're scared of it because they support the status quo knows that they know that when this is well done, it absolutely gets us much that much closer to blowing up the system, so to speak. I'm thinking about course access. I'm thinking about why couldn't Mm -hmm. I be enrolled in my local district school and take 50% of my courses online, maybe not even at the Massachusetts virtual school, but at the Florida virtual school or one at the Utah virtual school, right? And so this is all about, it's the same old, same old, I don't know, I'm going to tell you I don't like this because it feels foreign to me and also it might take away some of my power. I think there's a lot of that going on and I think it's not in the best interest of kids. Now, does that mean that all virtual schools as currently configured are what we want to see? Absolutely not. But until we figure out how to get there, you know, we can't foreclose the option in favor of building something that could just provide so much more educational freedom, quite frankly, for kids. So, Because some people who don't like reform are in search of the perfect to pervert progress. And I just think it hurts too many kids along the way. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, Gerard. All right. Two good stories of the week. Well, coming up after this, we are going to be speaking with Edie Hirsch, prolific author. We've had him on the show before, but I think first time with you as as co-host, my friend Gerard. So That's true. um, Hirsch, as he is right there in your home state of Virginia, he is the founder and chairman of the Core Knowledge Foundation and is Professor Emeritus at the University of Virginia. So we are looking forward to what's going to be an enlightening conversation, I'm sure, coming up right after this. Listeners, we are lucky to have for a second time, because he's just that interesting, Professor E.D. Hurst, Jr. He is the founder and chairman, as many of you will know, of the Core Knowledge Foundation and Professor Emeritus of Education and Humanities at the University of Virginia. He's the author of several acclaimed books on education, including Cultural Literacy, What Every American Needs to Know, The Schools We Need, The Knowledge Deficit, and How to Educate a Citizen, the power of shared knowledge to unify a nation, all of which I will add I have on my bookshelf. <laughs> um, Hirsch has persisted as a voice of reason in making the case for a quality of educational opportunity for countless years now, and um, and we're lucky that he's done so. A lot to talk about today. Professor Edie Hirsch, welcome to The Learning Curve. Well, thank you for having me again. Uh, we're really excited to have you here. Um, Lots going on today um, it, with the release of the new NAEP framework and other things. So we have we have questions for you around that. But I want to begin by reminding um, our listeners a little bit about your distinguished career and the Core Knowledge Foundation, which um, explains the importance of background knowledge in a set K to twelve curriculum. Now, your most recent book. How to Educate a Citizen discusses history and civics for citizenship. How timely. (laughs) Could you talk a little bit with for our listeners about the main idea of this book in particular, perhaps with an eye to how policymakers, teachers and students should be thinking about, especially in this moment, our country's very complicated past? Well, uh, of course, my focus is on the school curriculum, and I claim with some now some stunning evidence that if there is a coherent and shared curriculum that you can overcome, do two things that are terribly important. You can uh, make better readers and and learners uh, with a, a coherent background knowledge and you can overcome home disadvantage. And uh, both of those claims have been pretty well uh, verified by now, now by in two areas it's been verified. One is with actual uh, core knowledge students uh, with uh, a a control group and a a core knowledge group. Uh, Effect sizes are tremendous, and uh, thanks to David Grismer, a 
a, an education professor at, at UVA uh, who got a big grant to do these studies. It's pretty clear that the theory is correct. But of course, I was confident the theory is correct in, in practice because it's correct in, in the scientific evidence. So, so that's an, one initial point to start with, that uh, the actual uh, validity of the, of the theories is pretty well confirmed that kids do better when they have a coherent, coherent knowledge-based curriculum than if they don't. But I, I would like, if you don't mind, to, to just say something about the fundamental insight that lies behind all of my uh, work. There are two fundamental insights, and I hope we are able to <laughs> discuss and convey those because we won't need to get into a lot of detail about what specifically is on that curriculum and how does it relate to civics and, and the rest. I think it would be most helpful to your listeners if I simply described the, the fundamental insight that got me started. After all, I was an English professor and it just happened that a couple of areas of my research uh, overlapped with early education, quite by accident. The first point I'll, I'll, I'll start with is the insight that there, why it is that there is no such thing as a general reading comprehension skill. Everybody knows that there is a, there is a general skill of decoding words on the page. But there isn't a general skill of understanding those words. And that's what needs particularly to be overcome if you're in, interested in uh, closing the gap. Uh, for example, the recent black-white test score gap in reading has increased despite all the emphasis on black education and black culture. The, the, that's, it's, a, it's a tragedy and it's an embarrassment. And uh, of course, we have overcome that in the core knowledge schools because our black students are reading actually better than white students down the street, or, or put it a more general way, our low income students are reading better. And that's because uh, it's based on an accurate view of what reading comprehension is. Reading comprehension doesn't depend on a general reading skill. It depends on basically a listening and talking skill. The, the, your general ability in language uh, in, in a particular culture determines how well you can read. And that, it turns out, to depend on what the, in the scientific literature is called a speech community. And the effort is to create and enable an American speech community where people can communicate well and understand in nuanced way one another and be able to read books uh, that convey messages as well. And to do that, you have to have what in the scientific literature is called shared background knowledge. And I thought of two examples to mention to your listeners. One of them <laughs> I used as an example in my last book, and I didn't realize its significance until after the book was published. And that was the, uh, the most elemental nursery rhyme I could think of, which was Polly put the kettle on, we'll all have tea. And what struck me after uh, the book was published was well, what's really interesting about that nursery rhyme is it's a command. It said, go do this and, and we'll all have tea. Now, the command takes about three seconds or four maybe, depending on how fast you talk. Polly put the kettle on, we'll all have tea. But then Polly has to go do things that will take at least a half hour, particularly if we're going to have little sandwiches. And uh, the, 
Well, you know, I mean, for those of you who aren't familiar with tea, you have to not only put the kettle on the boiling water, you have to measure out the tea, put it in the pot, let the tea steep for a certain amount, take the tea leaves out of the pot. I won't go into the whole uh, rigmarole, but you have to do a lot of specific things. And in so think of the evolutionary advantage of being able to convey a command which is then obeyed. Well, that's the way you kill mastodons and, and dinosaurs in, uh, in er, early evolution. You, tribes of humans are able to do fantastic things and coordinate fantastic things because they, they understand commands and can work together. But that ha has a particular feature. It means two things, it, that you need not only the shared background knowledge, to, to understand language. Uh, it, it also uh, means that the words themselves have to be ambiguous because they have to be used in so many different circumstances. So that not only do, is, is it important to amplify what is written and said so that you understand the meaning, it's also important to disambiguate uh, We'll all have tea. I mean, that <laughs> uh, that itself could mean several different things. We know in in the context what what it means, but it could mean just we're we're sitting here. Let's have some tea, and the tea's already made and poured, and so on. So the inherent ambiguity of language, and the inherent need for background knowledge, those are two fundamentals. Which and well, why is that important in in the educational curriculum? It's because you need to share the background knowledge. So everybody in a particular culture or society has to learn a lot of the same things, if communication is to be possible. It isn't that person A can take one route and person B can take another route. No, they can take different routes, but they have to learn the same background knowledge in order to have the communication be effective. I think I'll pause there. I, yeah, I, do you have I, any questions about I do. What? I'd like to pick up on something that I think our listeners would, would be interested in hearing a little bit more about, Professor Hurst, and that is, so you're arguing, as you have for a very long time, for a shared background knowledge in order to help all students um, achieve at the same levels. And you're talking about the difference between what some would call reading comprehension and having this shared knowledge that allows you to, in fact, comprehend. But I want to pick up on, on something, and that is you noted that um, the, the emphasis in recent decades on schools that might, for example, emphasize um, black culture, African-American culture, or schools that, for example, you know, um, teach about black history to the extent that others might not. And you note that those schools have by and large not done well, but that the core knowledge schools that you've helped design have helped to close gaps between students of color and their, and their peers of the dominant culture, shall we say. Well, we now, strongly believe that core knowledge sure. and uh, the revisions of our uh, sequence show that there's great deal. But the, well, the function of that is more emotional than technical. Okay. The, the importance of, uh, of inclusivity sure. uh, it, it has a huge psychological significance. Uh, but, uh, but I myself uh, want to caution people who, who, who are interested in making those gestures. Two things have, are notable. During the time that the schools have increased the amount of uh, a black culture studied in, in our schools, the, the uh, gap between uh, black and white uh, students, the scores on NAEP in reading, have widened. In other words, the gap has gotten greater. The schools are doing a less good job technically mm -hmm. in enabling black students to read. And black parents, on the whole, uh, <laughs> flock to the core knowledge schools. They do. And they're not chiefly interested in, in did, did you have the Maya Angelou uh, novel in your curriculum? 
which is the, the kind of thing that gets discussed. But did my kids get into a good high school and then into a good college? Sure. And, and that's what those parents are asking. And, and uh, the, recently in the South Bronx, where there's uh, seven uh, core knowledge schools, which sort of under Jeff Litt, uh, they won the citywide debate contest. So, so these middle schoolers in core knowledge from black and brown parents uh, won the New York City, and that was 2019 when there were still classes, uh, the debate contest for the whole city. Those kids know how to wield the English language. So, but I have is, another question here babe, that I want to differentiate for our listeners because that is we do have data to show that, for example, having a teacher of color for a student of color can make a difference. Uh, we do have data absolutely. that. Absolutely. No, no, I agree with all this. Mind you, I'm not trying to poop through that idea. No, and, not at all. That's what I want to say. Uh, what I, it, because that's an emotional issue, mm -hmm. but there is a technical issue, and I think we need to be clear about it because it is a technical issue that goes against what is taught in uh, many of our education schools, which is that reading is a general skill, and that is an untrue uh, principle. It isn't the case. Reading mm -hmm. is not a general skill. Language is not a general skill. Uh, the whole uh, that brings me to another issue, and that is the 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 issue of uh, how sh how should I put it the the issue of differentiation that is so prevalent. I'm I'm sure you're familiar with it, but the idea that that you should ap approach the needs of different students in different uh, empathetic ways. And of course, in some sense, that's absolutely correct. But but it isn't correct when it comes to the curriculum, because the curriculum is something that needs to be shared. And the whole notion in early education that you need to develop the child according to that child's individual character and nature, that's the second principle that I think uh, my work is uh, resisting, and uh, and because of my technical background in in the humanities, which was a focus on the Romantic movement, particularly Euro uh, European Romanticism, and and as you may know, a lot of the ideas about differentiation and development of of children. Uh, come from the Romantic period. They're very prevalent in our education schools, and they need to be severely uh, examined and criticized because we know with some clarity now that early education is not a development. It is a formation. Uh, and we can say that, and that, that was the old idea of John Locke, of course. Uh, that children begin with a blank slate and need to make it formed. And the whole idea of ethnicity as something that is innate or inborn is something that has to be, <laughs> well, thrown out because uh, children are not innately uh, different from one another. Uh, educationally that speaking. That leads me to another question, Professor. So, you know, you're arguing, as you long have, for this con very content-rich um, liberal arts education, shared knowledge. As as I recall, in one of your books, you know, you talk about giving kids the Velcro <laughs> to, to in order to, to build new knowledge, right? Now, but for yes, yes, a decade, yes. more than a decade, we've had several reforms um, to, you know, uh, have more centralized curricula, whether at the state level or an attempt for, uh, you know, the, the common core curriculum. All of these things raced to the top, which poured money into these efforts to 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 help us reform the K to 12 system. Now, a lot of those reforms either didn't take or were implemented very poorly. And I bet you have a lot to say about the quality of those 
curricula. But what we know, as you've pointed out, is that NAEP scores continue to be disappointing. And even if we talk about international exams, you know, no movement to backward sliding there, unless you're in a couple of select states that stand out. So what is it, if you could tell us in 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 just a few sentences, is there is there one thing that you would give? Is it is it a, a centralized core knowledge curriculum for all students? What what is no. there that we need yes. to? Uh, yes, I would that. say the, I would say within the state that to get very specific on that point, uh, what is needed and what none of these reforms that you mentioned have actually implemented is topic specificity in a particular sequence. So uh, a shared sequence of topics. And I'm not saying it has to be the same book or the same treatment of those topics. So I'm not talking about mind control, which people are worried about. I'm talking about any way you, you treat the topic, there's going to be a, 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 a sequence that is shared by all the students. Now, there's a tech, the technical advantage of that is if all the students are sharing these topics as they go through school, they can be relied on to have shared background knowledge for the next topic so that they learn the next topic more effectively because they have shared background knowledge. In other words, you're creating a little speech community within the grades, within uh, the classroom itself. That is the pattern that has succeeded internationally. And uh, it's clear that technically having, uh, turning a classroom into a genuine speech community is going to help all students learn. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. And again, I live in Charlottesville, Virginia. Although I know you're not here, I look forward to seeing you in person uh, when you return to this part of the world. So let's just stick with NAEP. In December 2020, you wrote an open letter uh, to Education Week and really to the governing board uh, recommending that they not replace NAEP's assessment of reading comprehension, uh, a change that could go into effect with the 2025 test. Uh, you shared some of the, your ideas with us about NAEP, um, but also talk to us about NAEP policy, uh, the debate around it, uh, your view on the topic, and what this could mean, in fact, if they decide to get rid of the reading comprehension. Well, um, it, it isn't that they wanted to get rid of reading comprehension. What they uh, wanted to do is make it... Uh, uh, make the uh, reading tests more available, so, so to speak, I'm trying to use their language, to low-income students and students of different ethnicities. And that, <laughs> the problem uh, with that is a reading test, to be an accurate test, uh, has to be a sampling device. It needs to sample uh, what students will actually encounter in on the internet and reading and and everywhere else and what they intended to do or what it was recommended by uh, a group of education uh, experts uh, that NAEP should do was to make the reading tests itself more available I think that was the kind of phrasing that was used to uh, students of color to Latino students and so on, uh, so that they would be able to do better on the tests. And the device that they uh, proposed to use were to have little pop-ups uh, as kids took the tests so that the background knowledge that the students didn't have would be supplied to the students in the test itself. And of course, the, the first noticeable thing about that plan uh, is that pop-ups are not available in the actual, or not normally in a book when you're reading it. And so it doesn't qualify as an accurate sampling of device and you would break the trend line in, in, our, in our notions about how well 
uh, black students are reading and uh, and Latino students are reading. Uh, so you 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 it ceased to make NAEP a, a a really accurate report. And it, and I personally had the suspicion that everybody was wringing their hands about the fact that black reading scores had declined recently. And and I too am wringing my hands about that, but but I don't think the right way to go is to make a test that really isn't an adequate sampling or accurate. It's not an accurate test. And whereas the uh, the past tests by Nate were accurate, and so it seemed like a device to make the education system seem to do better than it was actually doing by these pop-ups. Thank you for the explanation. You've already referenced schools of education, um, and we know how uh, you've talked about challenges uh, in place. So here's a question. Why is it so hard to improve the academic quality of state-approved teacher preparation programs? And what's been your experience with the Core Knowledge Foundation's work with education schools? Well, here's what I think is the problem. Uh, and that takes me to my other area of uh, study that got me into this, and that is what happened to American education itself. If you look at the, if you look at uh, the scores on uh, the SAT exam, I, I don't know whether any of you have seen that recently, but there's a straight downward trend on uh, on the SAT of our 12th graders starting about 1952 or 1950 or so, so thereabouts and the trend line goes down 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 now why are our 12th graders not doing ever less well on the reading test uh, and those are the most select of our 12th graders. So it looks like the educational system isn't doing well. And my claim is the educational system had finally taken over and the education schools had, had uh, been teaching essentially what we used to call progressive education. That is uh, the differentiation of students, uh, the importance of letting each student develop in his, in his or her own way, those ideas about the progress of education. Now, I happen to know where, <laughs> where those ideas come from only because I, I was a student of uh, European Romanticism back when I was in graduate school. And uh, I, happen to be, I happen to study Schelling and Hegel and Fribble and Fichte and, and, you know, the whole array of the German romantics. And, and the German romantics had a tremendous influence on our gurus, particularly on John Dewey, uh, as you know, who was a guru of the new education. And his immensely influential book called My Pedagogic Creed, uh, which came out in 1898 or 97, I forget which. Anyway, that pattern of progressive education, which your listeners could uh, get a glimpse of because there's a 1936 March of Time, which has both John Dewey and Kilpatrick, and, and the, the, the March of Time piece is, is devoted to the, what they're calling the takeover of progressive education in American schools. And of course, the takeover came because uh, our education schools began teaching uh, ideas of proper development and developmental appropriateness and so on, and differentiation of the individual schools and so-called child-centered education. That all uh, took place with a vengeance and what our education schools were teaching took over with a vengeance in, in the 30s and 40s and pretty well got into the schools. That, uh, that uh, March of Time piece was 1936. And that became, as you, you all listening who are in education schools very well know, this uh, 
developmental notion of early childhood education. You must let the child develop in his or her own way. Uh, am I right about that? I mean, is this uh, is this a fair uh, sense of what uh, of what you in in education have in fact uh, seen? I, I think to some extent, yes. I'll I'll weigh in. <laughs> it's been well, a while. Thank you. Because because it, it turns out now. Here's the thing: that is not the the view of education before. Uh, this takeover of de what you might call developmentalism uh, uh, took over our education schools. Uh, before that, the metaphor instead of a plant that is growing or a, an organism or a creature that is, is growing and developing in a natural way, the, the metaphor for education uh, was a piece of clay. Uh, the molding of the child's mind. And uh, that, you know, uh, based on uh, Locke's notion of that the mind at birth is a blank slate and we have to form it. And and the, the interesting thing, and I make uh, quite a good deal of this in my most recent book, is that what brain studies are now showing is that John Locke was right. And uh, humans don't develop in the way that what Horace Mann called the lower, lower orders of animated creation was the term that Horace Mann used. Human beings are formed. And in fact, the whole, the neocortex, which is the most recently formed part of the human brain, uh, it, 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 there, there's a huge industry now in, <laughs> in uh, brain study on what is called cortical plasticity. Yeah. And of course, the, the fact that it, it isn't something that develops a particular form like a plant or, uh, or a creature or the, or the instinctive growth that animals show and know what to do from instinct, that human nature took a different course with human beings, and it's enormously important. And by the way, that was what our earlier educators thought anyway. Horace Mann was quite specific on that point, uh, saying that we're not like the lower orders of animated creation. We need to be formed because we're a blank slate. And, and that is hugely important because no longer, if the metaphor is no longer growth and development, but rather formation into a particular culture for the sake of the tribe or the sake of the nation, then that puts a different spin on what we should be doing in the classroom. I mean, it, what happened in the 30s and 40s, the, the children were all arranged in classrooms where uh, at tables where they were facing one another not uh, and developing their own uh, educations and not facing the front of the room, facing the teacher, who was the what we were, I guess, the tribal elder who is teaching the, the lore of the tribe, which was the, the earlier pattern of, of early childhood education. And it turned out to be the one that was actually in accord with human nature and the needs and the needs of the tribe. So that's a pretty fundamental change too, back to uh, the blank slate and formative notion of education. And I suppose those two things, if I can <laughs> leave your audience with those two ideas that, uh, that need to be at least introduced and discussed in our education schools is, is that really uh, children need to be turned around and listen to the teacher and the teacher needs to be taught in ed schools that she has this duty as a tribal elder, so to speak, to introduce children into the group, into the tribe, 
into the culture. It's interesting that you say that because I think as a as a parent, maybe I'm speaking for other parents, that's something that parents often feel instinctively, right? And so sometimes we struggle to um, to follow the rules that that uh, that our educators are able to implement in their classrooms. I think it, it's because of that tension that you highlighted just there. Well, Professor Hirsch, obviously we could we could go on for a very long time and, and ask you so many more questions. So I regret that our time is limited, but we thank you for leaving us with these two very important ideas and, and for your time today for coming on and, and for talking about your work, which, um, which remains influential, um, even though I, I started reading it all those years ago as a graduate student. So thank you very much. We wish you the best, a beautiful end to your summer, and we hope to have you on again sometime soon. All right, Gerard, we're closing it out, as always, with the tweet of the week, and here we are on the cusp of back to school with the Delta variant raging and heading into another uncertain September. And this tweet of the week is from the 74. Watch, it's a video, so I encourage you all to watch it. Go to the 74. Watch Zern CEO Shalini Sharma, and I apologize, Ms. Sharma, if I have mispronounced your name. I bet I did. Watch as she talks about how her math app revealed the pandemic's widening learning gaps in real time. I, I encourage you to watch it, everybody who's listening. This is um, this is a real thing, and this app just shows you how really those who did not have access, especially to high quality learning devices, that the learning gaps just widened. It's almost like dropping off of a cliff. So as we head into this September, Gerard, I know I'm just a couple of days, a couple not days, whew, a couple of weeks away from the start of school for our kids. I'm just fingers crossed that we can keep everybody healthy, our teachers, our students, our parents in the community healthy and learning because boy, oh boy, can't afford to lose any more time. Gerard, next week, we are going to be with Professor David Blight. He is the Sterling Professor of American History and the director of the Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition at Yale University. He's also the Pulitzer Prize winning biographer of Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. Maybe, Gerard, if you haven't read it, you can use that as vacation reading. So, in fact, I do have the book. It's one of the ones I have to read. And you said we, in terms of you are now French. <laughs> are you joining me next week or are you still vacationing? No, no, no. I am joining you next week. I wasn't sure when your vacation started because the calendar in my head isn't oh. very accurate, Gerard. But you know this about me. I am easily confused. So we will be together next week. Yes. Yes. And after that, you will be on your spa-cation. <laughs> <laughs> Look so forward to it. Well, as usual, enjoyed our time together. Enjoy Michigan. I will enjoy Charlottesville. You do that. Yes, Michigan. And I'll look forward to talking to you next week, my friend. Take care. Take care.